0: Hi everybody, Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network, sitting and waiting for my plane to take off to finally take me home. It's July 9th and 20th of of July 9th, 2023. 20th of Tammuz, 5783, or some people think so. But anyway, we'll leave that for now. I've had a really interesting few days here in the States. Uh, Been very, very busy. Had a wonderful Shabbat at Beth Shalom Lawrence. Spoke four times. Was really well received. Beautiful community. Um, Love teaching. I just love educating, getting people to think about things. And like the best thing for me is when someone comes up and says, wow, I learned so much from you today. Nothing, nothing, nothing makes me happier. So it was really nice, but I'm, so glad to be going home, and it's also pouring rain here in New York, although I assume it's not raining at home, although who knows these days. Anyway, I would like to say that I just happened to run into him, but we actually set this up um Professor Lawrence Schiffman, who is, oh goodness, Judge Abraham Lieberman, Professor of Hebrew and Judaic Studies, the Skirball Department of Hebrew and Judaic Studies, NYU, New York University. Um, we met a few years ago at a Limwood Conference in England following his work, uh, really one of the experts, I would say, in the world on the Dead Sea Conference, and he is on his way to Israel to do some work. So, um, Professor Schiffman, Dr. Schiffman, thank you so much for us finding a quiet corner here and doing the interview.
1: Okay, nice to be here nice to see you again
0: so why are you heading to the holy land
1: Well, there's going to be a conference on Yerushalayim, in Yerushalayim, actually at Yad ben are a lot of interesting historical papers, and I'm giving a paper regarding two urban planning texts, you might say, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. One of them is what they call the New Jerusalem, which actually is a name taken from the New Testament book of Revelation, because it's a similar text to what's found there, and they call it New Jerusalem, Yerushalayim Mechadasha. And then there's Megilat HaMikdash, which is the Temple Scroll, which is the second one, and I've been working on Mikhilata the Temple Scroll for so many years that I started working a little bit on this other text, and I'll be talking about the urban planning and temple planning of these two texts at the conference.
0: So you're saying that these Dead Sea Scrolls, and for those of you who don't know, of course, Dead Sea Scrolls found near the Dead Sea, uh, different ones have been found over the years, a window coming from about 2,000 years ago, 20, 200 years ago, really a window into the Second Temple Period, a fabulous window into the Second Temple Period that hasn't been so easy to study either, has
1: No, no, it wasn't easy because for a while many of the texts were unpublished and there was this monopoly left over from the old days of Jordan on those scrolls that were found in what was then Jordan. And uh, eventually this problem got solved. And really from the mid-1990s on, it's a lot easier to work on the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have all the texts available and we have good editions of all of them and a wonderful group of scholars working on them together and uh, interacting really all over the world. So scroll studies have really moved the head tremendously.
0: And I know the internet has helped as well. Virtually everything's been uploaded, right? Somebody listening to this show can go in, can see the scrolls, can see the translations.
1: Right, you can go to the uh, Israel Antiquities Authority. They have the uh, Leon Levy Dead Sea Scrolls Project. It's a wonderful uh, project and you can see there all the photographs organized according to scroll numbers of the ones that are with the Antiquities Authority because there are a couple with the Israel Museum, but they also have them online as well. And especially in the Antiquities authority site you have some editions of practically every single fragment which is there transcribed into hebrew you still don't have translations and other types of tools but they're they're working on it and the project is going on mm-hmm.
0: So you talk about urban planning, like somebody sat down and planned Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, we, we've got, we've got, the, we've got the, you know, the, the layout?
1: Well, in those days, they didn't actually plan in writing, but there's a whole series of plans. For example, at the end of the book of Ezekiel, there's an uh, what you could call an oral architectural plan for how he thought the city should be built. And there were two such Dead Sea Scrolls texts that we're dealing with. One, which appears to actually be planning the whole city, and the other one, which appears to be planning the temple precincts. Now one of the questions about the uh, so-called the Aramaic one, which is the one that we call the New Jerusalem, when we say planning the whole city, the residence areas have 22 beds in every room. So are those dormitories or are those visiting places for pilgrims to the temple? So it may be that both of these texts are planning nothing more than the temple precincts, which then leaves us with another question because these are ideal gigantic structures. And the question is whether or not the uh, authors of these texts intended that there would be residents to what we call the city of Jerusalem, or whether they were turning the whole Jerusalem into essentially temple precincts. And that's a sort of ongoing question, which you really can't answer, by the way. So, uh, but these are questions raised by these two texts.
0: So let's put this all into context here. Who wrote these particular texts?
1: Well, this is a real big problem because everyone talks all the time about who composed the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, I don't use the word "wrote" because when you use that word to write, you don't know what it means to copy or compose. So, I speak about composing and copying. But at any rate, so if you'll ask me in my language, who composed these texts? So, the New Jerusalem's in Aramaic. We have a rule which is an Aramaic text, is before there was a Dead Sea Scrolls sect. Why? Because with the Maccabean Revolt, there was a return to Hebrew. So we believe that all these Aramaic texts that were found in the scrolls all date to the late Persian or early Hellenistic period. So this, therefore, would be an earlier text before the general group assembled itself sometime around 100 BCE at Qumran, the site where the scrolls were found, and therefore sometimes before the collection or the library at Qur'an was made. Now, the temple scroll is more complicated. It probably came into being after the Dead Sea Scrolls group or around there, somewhere 120, 100 BCE, but it has sources, and the temple source, that is to say this oral architectural plan, goes back to, therefore, the pre maccabean period. And while we're at it, we just should mention that other oral plans of the temple of course, the Solomonic description in Kings and Chronicles. And then you have Josephus's description of not only the Solomonic temple, which of course is not really a plan, but of the temple of his day, which is a pretty accurate description. And then we also have in the Mishnah in Midot, we have an architectural plan, which is oral for apparently the temple that existed before Herod expanded what was the second temple into the gigantic Herodian temple that was destroyed by the Romans in 70, so there's a whole tradition of creating texts about gigantic or larger temples which are idealized and which were supposed to be built. Herod, incidentally, was the only guy who had the merit to build his temple. He got to build a new temple. No one else
0: But does he essentially destroy the Hasmonean temple in order to build his?
1: Well, I I have to admit that not all scholars agree that the Mishnahic description is the Hasmonean temple. But there are very good reasons to believe it, because that temple is 500 cubits by 500 cubits. And on the eastern... Wall of the Temple Mount, there is a line toward the south where Herod extended what was the previous Temple Mount. And if you go to the Kotel tunnels, you come to the point when you start to walk on the plastic. That is the point when the original temple seemed to have end. So we therefore know that the dimensions of the Mishnahic Temple are approximately correct. So once you then that's true, therefore, that that temple. Wednesday was destroyed, but much of it was dismantled and remodeled in order to make the new Temple Mount and Temple Building that Herod made. Uh, I think so. That's a a fair statement that you made, which I sort of expatiated on.
0: So we talk about the second temple period, but the truth is is that during the t- t- second temple period, there's like three, maybe even four versions of the
1: temple. I put it like this. There's two A, B, and C. A, built by, at the time of uh, Chagai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And we know that people cried when they compared that structure to the original structure. There were still people, survivors, we could say, from the destruction of the first temple. And that was A. Now, B, I've said so far, I've assumed so far, that B is from the Maccabean period. There are other views that B should be dated earlier. One way or another, whether before or after the Maccabean revolt, a Temple 2B was put in place of the little thing that had been used to get it going after the destruction. And that thing that came into into being that 2B had to be replaced for Herod to create 2C, mm-hmm. which is the great Herodian temple structure from which, of course, the Western Wall is a remnant of the Western Wall, not of the temple, but of the enclosure of the temple, namely the same of the, of the Temple Mount as we know it. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. So now you're talking to, to get back to the two scrolls that you've now been working on. So essentially they're older than they are. Meaning, as you said, they're copies of older texts because they were in Aramaic and they come from an earlier time period.
1: Correct. Correct. They're definitely copies. And in fact, the manuscripts are primarily already from the, from the Herodian period. The manuscripts are not as early as maybe we would have hoped, right? We do have one Hasmonean period manuscript of the Temple Scroll. But most of the manuscripts are later. But this shouldn't bother us because it's like saying, take the book of Genesis. We have a Dead Sea Scroll version of the book of Genesis. And, you know, it's not from when Genesis was composed. It's from much, much later. We're happy to have it.
0: Okay, so, so what you're saying, though, is that they, these are giving urban planning, if you will, to a temple, but there's already a temple up. So right, what are, do you think I, the plan was here to raise it and okay, rebuild?
1: Okay, so these are idealistic ideas of replacing the existing temple, which is in a certain sense what Herod did, but mm-hmm, yeah. they're gargantuan. Or some maybe even crazy, right? That is to say, you know, a temple of 20 kilometers by 30 kilometers, the whole enclosure. So some of these things are way out of bounds. Now, the question, the temple scroll explicitly says that its structure is for the present day in a pre-Messianic era. It's so big that it would cover the entire then city of Jerusalem. If you did it, if you built it, never mind all the stuff you'd have to do to level the territory and all that. Okay, Herod did something like that. But then the other one, a lot of scholars think that New Jerusalem is messianic, the Aramaic text. They think it's a messianic text. And therefore, there, it wouldn't be so crazy because it's a visionary text. There's a kind of angelic figure that's constantly showing the uh, recipient, whoever that is, everything about this temple. It's a kind of a heavenly tour of a not yet built temple. Mm -hmm. So it might be messianic.
0: Now, you said that that's the one that's similar to the New, that's in the New Testament or similar? Could that be the reason for that?
1: Yeah, Well, there's something to that because since the book of Revelation of the New Testament, like chapters 21 and 22, has a description of a messianic Jerusalem with no temple in it, because of course Jesus becomes essentially the replacement for the temple sacrifice, as you can see if you read Hebrews. So at any rate, so therefore they've constructed a, a, a vision of a messianic temple that basically doesn't have, a messianic Jerusalem, it doesn't have a temple. Now, the scholars who gave the name were thinking of that, not just that temple, but that, of that passage, but that theology. And therefore, they assumed that it must be similar to the New Testament text. But it doesn't have to be. It could be that the author intended it to be built now and, and did not intend it to be messianic. And of course, we should remember that the war scroll which describes the messianic war that's supposed to happen at the beginning of the messianic era, that scroll assumes that in the messianic era, the Qumran sectarians would take control of the Jerusalem temple and renew it according to their own pattern. So perhaps it might be that the author thought that it was referring to that, which was whether that is exactly messianic Or pre-Messianic is is something of an open question because a very important thing to remember, the Dead Sea sectarians see themselves one foot in the present, one foot in the Messianic era. So the line isn't so clear. So
0: when you say the Dead Sea sect, are you referring to what some other people call Essenes?
1: Do you think they are the Essenes or somebody else? They call themselves the Yachad. Look, the, the group we're talking about has been identified by most scholars as the Essenes. That's a fact, that most scholars think that. Now, the question is, is it really valid? There are problems with this theory because there are some small differences between Josephus's description of the Essenes and the Dead Sea Sectarians. On the other hand, the, uh, Pliny the Elder refers to there being a settlement of the Essenes above Ein Gedi. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Qumran is above Engedi. So these are the arguments for the Essenes and against the Essenes. Now, we have to remember the word Essene does not appear in Hebrew. The, we're used to the word ECM. We're used to that word because of the fact that it's so common in modern Hebrew. It doesn't appear until the, basically the Renaissance, when Azaria de Rossi needed to write about Josephus in Hebrew. That's when you start to hear about the, the uh, Essenes. Now, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the word Essene never appears. Mm-hmm. So we don't really know. So, but the general view is that they must be the Essenes because that's one of the three sects that Josephus mentioned along with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Mm-hmm. I myself have always been skeptical and very cautious about it. But it's possible that they are the Essenes and we need to redefine our view of who the Essenes are in light of the Dead Sea Scrolls because we have more material at Qumran than in the little descriptions of Josephus mm-hmm. and of Philo of the Essenes.
0: And it also could be that they didn't write everything that we found in Qumran, that it came down from Jerusalem, no, it was no the
1: king's question. collection. There's no question that there are many things in the Qumran collection that weren't written by the sect composed mm-hmm. by the sectarians <laughs> themselves. <laughs> and this is clear because not only the Bible, you know, all the books of the Bible are represented there except Esther, but also actually Nehemiah is not also because we assume Ezra and Nehemiah, one book. But right. Nehemi is not there. Esther is not there. But everything else is there. And the problem is even in fragmentary copies. So the, therefore, we also know that many books were brought to the sect, to the center, that were already composed somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And some of these same things are preserved in, you see them in Masada, in little fragments in Masada. So it shows that there's wider literature. So, we, But the material, which is hardcore of the sect itself, With its terminology and all that, most of the scholars do believe are Essene. And as I said, if you want to believe that, you need to modify what you think about the Essenes in light of the Dead Sea Scrolls rather than doing it the other way.
0: So I just went to an interesting conference in bar a few weeks ago, where they were talking about the assemblage of pottery, I think it was Ayal Regev, talking about the assemblage of pottery at Qumran. Normally, it's a third storage, a third cooking, and a third eating off of. And in Qumran, you have like 80% of tableware, showing that it is some kind of cult, it is some kind of place where there's a lot of eating going on, and people going in together, a community, a commune. I also had read an article you mentioned above, right, so the scenes are above in Getty, but an article that above could mean physically above yeah. in the mountains or east of because what? on ancient maps the top of the map is actually east.
1: The problem with the theory that you just gave is that the pottery doesn't work. That is to say all of the remnants of what is above according to those two definitions mm-hmm. right? Ain Gedi which we also very close to Ain turn out to be Byzantine. I actually heard this from Yosef Aviram the chronola Bracha. He told me he said this is crazy these people saying it. They took us on a he went on a tour took us on a tour there. And, and any anybody can see it. it's all Byzantine, it's not mm-hmm. true. So uh, th- that's the problem with that theory. There are a lot of theories that try to redefine what Pliny said. That doesn't seem to work. In other words, no matter what you're going to say, you have to accept that Pliny said that there were Essenes to the north of Ein Gedi, somewhere. That seems to me you have to accept. As to Ayal Regev and the pottery, this is of course correct. That the uh, number of service dishes is tremendous. One can joke and say that it was a a wedding hall or something like that, right? (laughs) But it's clear that there's a lot of communal cooking action. But having said that, the cooking pots are not that large. So that's another question, Right. right? But I can tell you that we had a dinner there at the 50th anniversary of the Dead Sea Scrolls at the conference, right which is already I don't know what 35 years ago right we had actually had a dinner there a uh, sort of Qumran like dinner right not in the ruins you know right. but where it was uh, yeah and it, at any rate right uh, people joked a lot about it but right. the reality of the situation is that there was clearly some form of communal dining going on there all the arguments about the site the alternative views of the site, other than that it's some kind of sectarian religious site, they are all impossible. And I want to say one thing about impossible. You see, in scholarship, there are like a number of levels of what could be and what can't be. And people think in humanities, anything can be, anything can't be. Anything in order to be considered by scholars has to be possible. And some of these theories that you hear are just not possible. Well,
0: like Hirschfeld, who thought yeah, it was a Rome. big
1: villa. Yeah, these, these theories, these theories, unfortunately, actually, uh, you know, I, we don't want to say bad things about him. The poor man passed away. But I asked him once a question about the way in which a wall was attached to another wall of the site. And because he knew that the answer to that question would show the problem of his theory, he started telling me I'm narrow-minded. What are you talking about, right? You can't tell me that you have a fortress and the walls are attached one to another without interlocking in a way that would give you a strong fortress and tell me it's a fortress. So, I mean, this was, you know, a lot of these theories don't make any sense. Or there are theories that are true but partial, if someone tells you that because they found a boat dock at Qumran it served as a trade center well we know the trade center was not there but there was a boat dock okay mm-hmm. people went on a boat right <laughs> that's right. that's true that doesn't make something we know of course the trade center was Jericho for the whole area so i mean these these points of view that are really off from the sectarian or some type of religious settlement of people eating together and studying, things like that, right? They don't, they don't, those theories don't work.
0: So anybody who's followed your work over the years understands how passionate you are. I mean, you made your entire career about the Dead Sea Scrolls. But I know from previous conversations that we have that it's not without its challenges. Um, you live an orthodox lifestyle, you're a God-fearing Jew, and some of the scrolls don't aren't exactly the same text that you would find if you went into a synagogue. So so, how do you reconcile that in your academic world and your faith based world?
1: I think, I think that some of these problems are not really problems. Let's start from the beginning here. We have to remember that when it comes to the biblical material at Qumran, it's evidence of what was the nature of the biblical text at a certain point in its history. It has nothing to do with the composition or origins of the text. That's a very important thing. Now, when we examine this, we find several things. One thing we find is, that if we talk for a moment about the books of the Torah, that besides the one exactly the way we know it, the proto-Masoretic text, which is in evidence in some Qumran manuscripts and is extensively the only text at Masada, and Bar-Kolpa texts, right? So we know that beside that, there were some texts with other differences, like a Proto-Samaritan text and other things like that, like a text that resembles the Septuagint. We know that these texts existed, but in my view, they're actually derived from a Masoretic-like text. Now, if you are really going to be a fundamentalist and you think that there never was a letter changed, right, you will have a problem with the scrolls because the scrolls do show us how scribes work and what type of minor things happen. But frankly, it seems to me anybody who reads the Torah and finds Yasaf ben El Yasaf ben Uel, knows already that this, is, this has to be understood with a little bit of flexibility. Mm-hmm. And uh, beyond that, I don't think that the scrolls really do uh, provide a major challenge in the biblical text. What they require you to do is to widen your understanding and accept some possibilities you might not have thought were, were possible, but that don't really contradict the notion that in origin these works come from experience of revelation, which is the big the big point that that distinguishes the traditional Judaism from other other approaches to the material.
0: So what do you think about some of the books that were found that we that didn't come down into the biblical canon Ben Sirah and you know Jubilee and a lot of
1: these other all, books All of these books represent various jewish ideologies and ideas from the second temple period now i think an intelligent reading of josephus and rabbinic literature will tell you even if you didn't know anything about these texts, will tell you that there were other ideas and there was a lot of competition of ideas and from those ideas with the after the destruction of the temple the prushim the pharisees emerged as the the one that, that was going to carry the future. But we know that there were other views, and these views are documented, and many of these materials have parallels in rabbinic literature or are argued against in rabbinic literature. And so what we're finding more and more is that the rabbinic view of the Second Temple past is more accurate than people realize, but again here you have to be willing to read some of those texts a little bit differently than they were read before. As we're approaching Tisha an obvious example is if you read the Talmud's description of the beginning of the revolt and the whole story of Kamtza and Bar Kamtza, how eventually the situation boils down to the refusal to offer the sacrifice in honor of the emperor and that of course is what Josephus described is the beginning of the revolt. So you see that when read intelligently, the traditional Jewish sources are not at such great variance with what we learn from ancient literature, scrolls included in that literature, regarding what was going on in Second Temple times. And I think that that's, you know, from that point of view, it doesn't really create a challenge unless somebody really wants to be a kind of strict fundamentalist, then I think they might have a problem. But then I think they're coming to their, their religious beliefs with, with maybe too rigid a way of looking at things to accord with reality. And that's the problem with the Rambam talks about in the introduction to the Guide to the Perplexed, where he talks about somebody where the contradiction of basically what he calls philosophy, but it's what we call science, and religion, that sometimes we have to not take things literally that don't, exactly work out together. And that's a challenge that we do have sometimes.
0: And of course, the Rambam living 800 years ago, way, way, way before the Dead Sea Scrolls yeah, have been found. I, I mean, sometimes I think really, like, what would the Rambam have done? Like, I can't even imagine how excited he might have been to uh, to have an access to some of these texts well, that
1: we don't question. have. That's an interesting question, because there, there is an argument that goes on in traditional Jewish circles today about whether one should even read a medieval commentary, which wasn't known until recently, because was only recently published from some manuscript believe it or not there you are know, people actually say you shouldn't look at them right now so I, I imagine though that the Rambam wouldn't be one of those people right. and that he would he would want to know what was in the Dead Sea Scrolls but I don't know whether it's really fair to anybody who's dead <laughs> for us to try and wave him as a as an exemplar of ourselves which is sort of what we're doing
0: so when was the biblical canon as we know it closed down
1: Well, the biblical, this is a big debate because I'm a minority in believing that there is evidence that the biblical canon is essentially our canon with a few extra books in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Because if you take a look at the scrolls, what they call Sefer, the word Sefer only appears for our books and one or two others. Now, when you look at the fact that Philo only deals with ours, Josephus deals with the same books that we have in our Tanakh. And the New Testament deals only with the New Test- The ones we cite. Now, there are two exceptions. The New Testament once, in the book of Jude, cites Enoch, Hanokh, mm-hmm. and the rabbis cite Ben Sira. So, okay, so there's some question sometime whether something was in or out. In the end, both of those traditions, Jewish and Christians, excluded those last. And th- when would that have been? That, well, it's gotta be sometime that it must have become a custom, because here's the problem. The problem is, Christian scholars thought that this was done by a meeting at Yavneh. Why? Because in the mission of Yadayim, there's an argument about the last books. And they do argue that Shirah Shiram, the Song of Songs, and Esther, right, that these have to be considered part of the Bible. So that the Christian scholars thought that must have been a whole meeting about what's going to be the Bible. We, now no one believes at that, that meaningful place. So it seems like the last of the books may have been being argued then. But having said that... The so
0: rest- that's post-destruction? Yeah, yeah
1: post-destruction. However... The whole rest of it seems to have been decided way before, and almost all of it in consensus. As I say, the scrolls people may have had a few extra books. The rabbis, some somebody might have thought Ben Sear was okay, and then they decided, no, it's too late to be in the canon. And the Christians, as I say, once Jude quotes Enoch, but then they, he, they, they don't.
0: So, so it could have been under the Hasmoneans, or you think after that? After I don't that? think it's
1: established by an authority. It's established by common custom among all the groups, mm-hmm. deciding that this is what we, re- we regard as holy. Now, if you want to be a little bit more specific though, there is some evidence, it's not all at once. The Torah is clearly a canon by the time you reach Ezra and Nehemiah, because they're dealing with the Torah as a whole. Then the prophets are a, are a canon. And that's fifth century BC. Yes, right. The other, the, the prophets are a canon by, I don't know what year you want, but at the end of Malachi, in Mal, this book of Malachi, it says Torat Moshe That Obviously, that's the conclusion mm-hmm. of the Nevi'im. And then, in terms of the Ketuvim, that's where the thing seems to have been going on longer, and the last of the Ketuvim being decided in, apparently, in Yavne, after the kurban mm-hmm. after the destruction of the temple.
0: But then you have the, some of the books that are kept for us, actually, in Egypt, right? Or by, in Greek, by the Christians, The what we call yes, the yeah,
1: Apocrypha. Absolutely. Well, we have books called Apocrypha, but I would generalize a little bit differently, I would say, that we have, from the Second Temple period all kinds of books. We have the books that became part of the Dead Sea Corpus. Some of them are the same that are in the Apocrypha, like Tobit. The Christians kept these books in their manuscripts. And then we have, beginning in the like 17th, 18th, well, maybe 18th century, they start bringing to Europe what we call the pseudepigrapha, which are other Second Temple books that were in the hands of various Eastern churches, Ethiopic, Slavonic, etc. And all this together is the literature of the Second Temple period. I can make an advertisement for a work of which I'm one of the editors called Outside the Bible, which is three volumes, like 35, 3,500 pages. And It's got all these texts from Second Temple period, which are not part of our Bible. But it doesn't seem that anyone thought that large numbers of them were of the Bible, although different groups. I can just tell you a funny story. I taught for a month in a program of the Jewish Theological Seminary in YIVO in Moscow, and in order to read Second Temple texts with the students. So some of the Second Temple texts were in their Bibles. Why? Because even the Jews took the Christian Bibles that they gave out because they were free. And to buy a Russian translation made by Jews from Israel was a lot of money. So they would take these books, and so they all had them, and they had in them what they considered to be the apocrypha. But their apocrypha was bigger than the apocrypha of the Catholics, and their apocrypha had in it more of the text that I was reading with the students than we would have had if you would have had a students with a Christian apocrypha book. Right? It's just very funny, like Enoch's in their Bible.
0: Right. And I mean, I was privileged to be able to study some of these Jubilees and the Pesher of Chavakuk. I mean, some of these are, are really absolutely fascinating. You think it's a problem for people to study these books that are not in the well, Tanakh? I think
1: that people misunderstand because there is a mention in the Mishnah of not studying Sfarim Chizoniyim. Mm, yeah. But I think people make a big mistake because that is a minority opinion in the Mishnah and was not accepted in any of the post-gim as Halakha. So people think that it's forbidden to study these books. It's not forbidden in Jewish law to study these books. I only thing that I would suggest is that people who study these books should be careful what secondary literature and commentary they're using. In fact they're best they're going to outside the Bible because you have really wonderful commentaries there and introductions putting it in context so people don't misunderstand what these things are. Because there's a lot of craziness out there on internet yes. about these books by people who are like starting new religions and, yeah. and you don't want to get involved with that.
0: Right. So uh, maybe this isn't a fair question. You have a favorite
1: A favorite of these books? Mm -hmm. Well, this is an unfair question, but (laughs) look, I I think probably that one and two Maccabees, really? because the history of... Which
0: Maccabees, also were not in the...
1: Yeah, it's so important. Well, there's a funny joke about this. The Catholics have one and two Maccabees in their Bible, and the Jews don't. So it's like, imagine if we had the Christmas story and they didn't, because that's what's <laughs> going on. They got it in our Bible, Maccabees. But I think Maccabees is, is, this is very important for understanding the whole story of Hanukkah and how we understand it now, which is somewhat different than the way it used to be understood because of what's in the books of the Maccabees. And then beside that, I think I would probably say Jubilees, but that's because I'm so interested in the history of Jewish law and Jubilees is loaded with material on Jewish law. Mm -hmm. But uh, the books are fascinating. They really are as as a whole. Uh, It's a whole period, the Second Temple period. People don't understand what's going on, how important it is. And it's a major debate about what would Judaism become. And you could argue what's going on right now. And, and, and that's why the Second Temple Period is parallel to a lot of things that happen in the modern world.
0: I mean, you mentioned Maccabees, which I also learned, and I didn't know for a long time that there even were four books of the Maccabees, and I think that a lot of Jews who study traditional, you know, day schools, etc., aren't told that. Why do you think that at least one isn't in the biblical canon?
1: Well, because there were A, they were composed afterwards, and B... Well, at least we don't have, one Maccabees was composed in Hebrew, but we don't take Greek books, we only have it now in Greek, One and two Maccabees was composed in Greek. Three and four aren't really about the Hanukkah story. Mm -hmm. They're interesting books, but they're not about the story. But I I would certainly think that these are things which would be very worth people reading to find out what really happened. But I want to point out it's not so simple because one and two don't tell exactly the same story. And one has to know how to put them together and construct out of them historical knowledge, which is the problem with with any sources that, that you have.
0: Well, Divrei Hamim Chronicles also sometimes co- contradicts
1: other books. Right. You have Divrei Hayamim represents often an, either an alternative version or an adaptation, depending on what you're reading, or additions to Ezra and Nehemiah. By the way, the reason no one reads Divrei Hayamim <laughs> is because the first nine chapters is lists of names. So if you want to read it, you got to start in chapter I think it's ten or something like that. Most people won't read those names. I read those names for the average person. What are you kidding?
0: So, who else is appearing at this conference? I 'm sure this is also an opportunity for you to see, see some of your colleagues or talk to people yeah, whom you haven
1: 't yeah, seen in a while. Funny. The people that are appearing at this conference are mostly not people who work in the stuff that I, uh, that I work in. There are tremendous number of people working in medieval crusades and, and Christian art. And, and stuff like that. I know that uh, Bill Schneiderwin from California is going to be there, and he's a person that, that uh, I, I, I see a lot, but of the Israeli colleagues, it's interesting that most of them are people who work in, 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 in very, very different uh, areas. And not like the, uh, I mean, there, there, there are a couple of, uh, you know, Professor Wexler badolach is going to be there, an archaeologist there. Some of these people, but it's not the whole usual suspects group Mm -hmm. They're not mostly going to be there.
0: Is it open to the public or is it going to be on Zoom? Do you have anything?
1: I can't can't even tell you. I don't know if it's open to the public. I know they told me when Uh I'm speaking. They sent me the program, but I don't don't know if it's open to the public. I'm sure it's on their website.
0: Yeah, Yeah, they do a lot of educational material, a lot of coursework, publish a lot of books. They're really a very important school in Jerusalem. Fabulous. Wow, this is like super exciting. So what's your next thing that you're
1: working on? My next thing that I'm working on, actually, I've been working for years, I'm trying to finish a collection of over 40 non dead Sea Scrolls scholarly articles that I wrote, most of which have been published, but not all of them, putting them together to make them accessible. And uh, that's the next thing I'm trying to finish.
0: You're not somebody who's ever going to retire, I well, see. No,
1: but I, 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 I don't intend to retire, if that's what you're asking. <laughs> right? I always joke about that. I say they're paying me a lot to do what I love. Why should I retire? Right? that's right okay.
0: wow Professor Lawrence Schiffman on his way to Israel for a conference thank you so much this was really fascinating the best time I've ever had waiting for a plane
1: <laughs> thank you very
0: much okay everybody Eve Harrow gotta get on that plane right now so happy to be going home hope wherever you are you are good I will see you next week Every Sunday, join the Land of Israel Fellowship. This live, interactive Zoom experience is hosted by Jeremy Gimpel and Arya Bromowitz with participants from around the world. To join, visit thelandofisrael.com fellowship.